Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Elizabeth Lev. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for inviting me. And for any of our listeners who weren't here for your first episode, um, just a quick recap. Elizabeth Lev is an art historian uh, based in Rome with degrees from the University of Chicago and Bologna. And she worked as a consultant of art and faith for the Vatican Museums and is an author. In our last episode, we were discussing her book, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. And for this episode, you're back to discuss your new book, The Silent Night, a history of Joseph as depicted in art, which I um, I was just saying before this, we started recording how excited I was for this because I love St. Joseph. So this is very much up my alley. <laughs> I'm delighted. This is my um, post-pandemic book. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you you actually put your your time to good use. You came up with a book. I guess that kind of brings us to the start, which is how did you start doing this book? I think um, you said you were inspired by Pope Francis's year of devotion to St. Joseph. Yes, I really, it was uh, Pope Francis's decision to consecrate uh, 2021 to St. Joseph and that really beautiful letter he wrote, Patris Corde, that, uh, that, that was very inspirational. And then uh, I was asked to write an article, you know, kind of inspired by it. And when I went to decide which, which image of Joseph should I use, I suddenly found so many, I I was, I was amazed. And the more I kept digging, the more I found. The next thing you know, I'm saying, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't an article, this is a book. And so um, Pope Francis was good enough to give me something to do to uh, use my time usefully during the course of this lockdown period that we had in Italy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that letter you were talking about, Patrice Corday, I agree, is, is totally moving. And I think he does such a good job of bringing out why St. Joseph is, I think is always important, but I guess is maybe, uh, it's it's easy to tie his patronages to the kinds of struggles that we're facing at the moment. I loved what he said about, you know, caregivers and um, workers and people who provide essential services and put themselves in danger, in the way of danger for others. I think now that we've moved on to the next world calamity with, with war on our, our horizons, I think the, the issues of um, uh, refugees and migrating and taking your family to safety again are yet another way in which St. Joseph is speaking to us at the moment. And so in your book, you do a lovely job of, of highlighting the different elements of St. Joseph's patronages or his, his characteristics and how those can kind of both show us something about the people who made that art, but also inform us today. And I think it's really, really beautiful. But I, I wonder, did you, have you thought at all about why St. Joseph is particularly inspirational for artists that like, is there something about him? I think maybe the silent person who invites contemplation is maybe uniquely positioned as a, as an artistic subject. You know, once upon a time they talked about actors and they said there were two types of actors. One was the actor who's got so much personality that the actor simply presses his personality. Every single person that the, every single character that the actor plays is the actor's personality imposed on the character. So there's another kind of actor, an actor that can move in and out of roles effortlessly. And that actor is very 
almost just melds and blends into the background, very hard to pinpoint because that actor can put on all of these different guises. And I think the fact that St. Joseph does not one recorded word in the gospel, he's got 15 mentions in all over all four gospels, and um, he basically disappears by the end of the chapter two of St. Luke and Matthew. I think that puts him in that latter category. He's someone who um, his, his words, his personality does not define him. Yet those fundamental qualities which we respect, no matter no matter who we are, that of you know, steadfastness, that of protectiveness, that of uh, a respect. I mean, there's a tremendous respect he has of his uh, charges. Um, and, and and my favorite the one that uh, the one that Pope Francis really coined, which is I think my favorite term for for Saint Joseph, is this creative courage. Um, particularly in the idea of creative courage, all of these different ways that we can think about how Joseph rose to the occasions and the challenges that he had to face. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And you're saying obviously he doesn't have any words in the Bible that he states and. Um, I, I follow the Magnificat for the readings every day. And when it comes around to the Feast of All Saints, they have this litany where you go through sort of through time, all of the great saints of the church and each each petition includes like a quote from them. And when you get to St. Joseph, it just says, pause in reverent silence. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. But I, I also love, like you said, the the creative courage, because I think you're right that that really is so fundamental to the way that we understand St. Joseph and his masculinity. I think that was something else that you bring up in the book and that Pope Francis mentions, which is just this sense of finding what true masculinity is. I think you pull up that kind of crises of masculinity that we have in our culture, whether it's a complete disregard of saying, like all masculinity is bad and that it's something that we need to scrub out of our our newly unpatriarchal society <laughs> um, as if, which is a totally misguided way of seeing the world but then there's also the swing back which is to say oh we maybe even we as catholics should be adhering to very restricted ways of looking at at manhood of this sort of 1950s madmen style of of man manliness and i think St. Joseph is so good at confounding our expectations of that. I think you have beautiful um, examples in the book of, uh, I think you have a chapter on domestic bliss, which I just think is so lovely, or even Fool for Christ. You have these kind of almost satirical paintings of him washing diapers and him um, being involved in family life. And that, like like we were saying, that kind of silence, that self-giving. I think there's a beautiful quote that you, you have from St. Francis of Assisi, the Chesterton book, which actually, uh, spoiler alert, is our next episode of Risking Enchantment, but that finding your your place as the secondary character. And I think, yeah, that, that I, I love some of those paintings of him uh, there's one where he's he's it's tied up like both the domestic bliss of being in this space with Jesus and Mary and also working. I think you have one with him. It's almost like a sort of medieval picture of them at home, and he's off to one side working on on his his carpentry, and Jesus and Mary are sitting together, sort of in in playful union there. I, th- I think those, I think that, that's a really good point about all of the, the different ways that Joseph uh, appears to us over these over these centuries, and it's um, 
in the question of masculinity, I think it reveals that perhaps this question of what is a good man is not something that we invented in the third millennium. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, other societies wondered what does it take to be, what does it mean to be masculine? I mean, maybe we don't, you know, just because we seem to have questions about biology, doesn't mean that other people didn't ask about the role of the man, the husband, the father in, in, in society and in the family. And I think the fact that we have these really interesting, you, you, you referenced these, um, these almost satirical images, they, they're very interesting. They're Northern European, primarily German, where there's a real question about who wears the pants in the family. I mean, I mean literally, and they're like, you know, who's, who's, who's the boss? And so there's this funny way in which there's several of these words where Joseph becomes, Joseph is literally the housewife, and he's kind of sitting there with a the baby, like, you know, here I am, I'm mother of God. And so there, there are ways that people, and, and those those are very, very popular. There's, um, there's some interesting uses of St. Joseph in um in Latin America, where he became um, the patron of jealous husbands. I mean, it just, it, 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 it tells us, all of these different images tell us that apparently men and women trying to understand each other is something that we do. It's something that we, we work on. We, we look at how the society changes. We ask ourselves, what is changing us? What should we keep? What should we, what should we alter? And, and that this is something that is something in flux. It doesn't just up and get decided. And it seems to me a very sort of arrogant way of thinking that, you know, here we are in 2022 when we know everything. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that that's spot on. And I think for this episode, I kind of, rather than going through the whole book, um, you kind of plotted out somewhat chronologically, but I just wanted to pull out some of my favorite elements because there's so much to cover. And I, one of the ones that I was really struck with, because the last time you were on here, we were discussing the Roman obsession with doubles and doppelgangers and the founding of Rome with um, Romulus and Ramus and also this cult of Castor and Pollux. And if you want to hear more about that, listen to the previous episode with Liz. But um, that ultimately it comes down to the founding of the Christian Rome with Peter and Paul. But in this book, you, you pull out another way in which a double sort of reappears with St. Joseph. Yeah, that that was that was such a fascinating curveball. And the worst part is how how many images I've seen where this is, I realize it kind of looks similar, but I never really put it together. So it is uh, a basically a fifteenth century, early fifteenth century phenomenon. Actually, you can take it back to the fourteenth century, fourteenth century, early fifteenth century phenomenon, in which Saint Peter and Saint Joseph start to look alike, and it responds to several crises in the church. It responds to um, uh, papacies that, that beyond even before the papacies moved to Avignon, even before that, there is already a kind of tension about where the Pope is, what's the Pope's job, is the Pope supposed to be wheeling and dealing with other famous families or just, just dealing with sort of diplomatic questions, or does the Pope have other other tasks that perhaps are more, more important? And I think we could see in many occasions, particularly in the Middle Ages, so basically from 1100 to 1200 to 1300, there are a series of moments where the papacy seems to kind of lose focus and get very involved in things that are worldly. And uh, a way of calling that, um, that, that, that worldliness back is to begin to suggest that uh, the 
the successor of St. Peter should model himself after Joseph as a good husband, uh, a good caregiver to the church. And um, it's uh, it, it, it results in several different paintings where you'll see Joseph dressed in the traditional blue and yellow, which um, is the, the robes that usually worn by Peter. Uh, Joseph's ten generally is ten, they tend to show him as an older man, but not only will he look older like Peter, but he'll start to have kind of the straight-looking beard and the kind of little Roman cut that uh, Peter has. So there's a deep interest in using Joseph as a role model for the papacy for a fairly extended period of time. Yeah, I was really struck by it. Like you, you point out, there's some paintings by Giotto, which... Uh, when you put them side by side, it almost looks like you could, if they were side by side, you'd be reading the story wrong. You're like, oh, that's the same person. <laughs> I wonder, it was, it's perhaps maybe a, a somewhat simple element to muse on, but the, the statues of Joseph that I was always raised with, I think when I think of like cribs and nativities, I see him in a purple robe with a brown cloak. And I always wondered what that was in reference to. And now that I'm looking at your book, I almost wonder, because in there's a couple of examples. There's a beautiful painting by Zuraban of um, Christ crowning Joseph with flowers in heaven. And you, you point out that the gold, the kind of the over the top gold has become a brown robe instead. So that instead of blue and yellow, it's more kind of blue and brown. And I'm wondering, is this almost like, I hate to bring up online culture in this way, but you know, that picture of that dress that nobody could understand. This is a blue dress blue and black or, or white and gold I'm almost wondering do you would you do you know anything about the coloring of the the purple and brown is it just a distorted a more humble a slightly offset blue and gold because even in some of the paintings that you have at first glance I'd have almost said oh that's a purple and then gone oh no wait it, it's probably a blue I think the purple and the I think the, there's 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 a lot of shading that moves into purple with St. Joseph which is uh, actually fairly interesting the the there is a whole strain of talking about Joseph as the descendant of kings and purple is a royal color and there are several images of Joseph where Joseph's robe begins to take on a little bit of a of a of a purplish cast to it, which I which I wonder is somehow drawing out in the midst of um, the other sort of humble aspect, uh, the, uh, the 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 kingship, the royal line of Joseph. The brown, however, the brown it, it's 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 uh, the color of of, of earth. Where we get humble, and I think there's a lot of emphasis on the humility of Joseph. And I think in the Caravaggio painting, I think Caravaggio makes it very explicit. At least in my mind, it becomes very explicit when Caravaggio does it. Um, the image of Caravaggio in the Rest of the Flight to Egypt has Joseph. It's all a symphony of brown. So the angel divides the painting in two. And on the left-hand side of the painting, Joseph, the donkey, the family backpack, the ground under his feet, it's all brown. It's all the earth. This is the earthly part of the Holy Family. Then you move to the other side and you see this golden light. You see these richer colors and this endless setting. So I think um, part of the use of the brown, part of the reason why they dim that into brown is to dim gold into brown, is to really uh, start emphasizing this humility of Joseph. And his um, his ability to put his I mean you know this is this is uh, a Middle Eastern man we're talking about uh, who has to sort of put things aside and you know he has to he has to 
everything is to be in function of this this woman and um, and this child. So I think part of it is to really kind of encourage the emulation of the humility of, of Joseph. And I think those purple casts, I think you're right, there are actual purple casts. I'm trying to pull up in my head. I think it's... Um, the Murillo. Murillo. And it's Murillo, so I was thinking, and Murillo uses purple. Um, I think that also draws out the fact that we're dealing with someone who is of a lineage of kings, as Bernard of Clairvaux really points out very emphatically in his writing on Joseph. So it's almost like the purple swaddled in the brown is the, the kind of hidden kingliness of this exactly. humble man. Um, and I loved that Caravaggio painting that you were talking about, actually. I just wanted to say, I just think it's so stunning. Um, and it's in the Doria Pamphili. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting. And it was also going actually beyond the the papal doubling. I thought it was lovely how you pulled out, and I think other writers have done the same of pulling out the the parallels with the Old Testament Joseph, or even um, I think in one of your other interviews, you were discussing a, a painting of the betrothal or the marriage of Mary and Joseph, where Joseph looks very Davidic, that kind of pulling out, informing our, our understanding of Joseph by looking at the Old Testament Josephs or the Old Testament precedents as well, which is just how art helps us to pull out all of these layers and understandings of him. Yes, it's very, it's the very first step, the first, first step in gaining this true devotion to Joseph. The apocryphal stories are written very shortly. They're, they're, they're written very early on. So this is third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. And those stories, uh, they're sort of stopgap stories to kind of, so where's Joseph come from? Uh, how come he's not interested in the Virgin Mary? It's because he's really old and had kids ready. And he was probably really upset about it. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of just trying to, trying to fill in blanks and sometimes feel like, feels like they're trying to fill in blanks hastily dealing with the problem, the immediate problems of that world. When you start dealing with saints who don't think this immediate problem as much as they think big picture, we find Bernard of Clairvaux who is really thinking about who was this man of all the men in the world, who was this man chosen to be the spouse of the Blessed Virgin, to whom he personally has, of course, this incredible devotion. And one of the things he really wants to get across this is a man who is regal, and this is a man who's not named Joseph by accident. He's named Joseph because he's supposed to draw out the qualities of Joseph the patriarch. And then he goes on to compare the chastity, the chasteness of, of Joseph, who refuses the advance of the wife, wife of Potiphar, Potiphar, the, the versus Joseph who uh, has self-mastery, uh, Joseph who is able to interpret dreams, Joseph who receives messages of dreams. So he really just lays it all out there, and then artists, can, from there, they can start getting to work. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I was even thinking of then how you can take it further and say who's the Joseph after Saint Joseph of Joseph of Arimathea who provides the cave for Christ to lie in just as Joseph the father provides the cave for Christ to lie in. And I think it's not necessarily a coincidence in the sense that they are actually linked, but Joseph of Arimathea becomes this hugely important character in Arthurian legend. He is the 
the minder of the grail in the same way that St. Joseph minded the body of Christ, that St. Joseph of Arimathea becomes this guardian of of the grail, of the relics of Christ, that all the knights have to go and, and find. And this becomes this central part of the Arthurian and the knightly understanding of themselves. And so then uh, early on in the book, you you point out the sort of Saint Joseph as, as knight in the in the sculpture of Otan on the on the capital there. I, I love that work. That, that work was one of my just the whole image of Joseph as this knight, and that's such a wonderful connection that Joseph Arimathea becomes this figure of Arthurian legend. Now, I wish I'd taught you before I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that sculpture is so. It's again, it's kind of you mentioned that they're they're sort of humorous. And obviously it predates those kind of humorous paintings, but there is almost something kind of humorous because you have um, Our Lady and, and uh, the baby Jesus, I think, on a, on a donkey. And it's um, Joseph sort of poking out at the side of the uh, of the column, pulling this, <laughs> this donkey. He's almost like sliding out over the top of it. But he's got that that knightly helmet and that... Uh, that <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, a fun it's the most charming. adorable thing it's really really adorable it's so inventive and so interesting and it really it changes the way we think about joseph absolutely and like we were saying that that then all ties back to the idea of who is joseph like you were saying jo- joseph the patriarch who resists the advances of potiphar's wife this idea of chastity this idea of self-mastery and the fact that that carries on you know thousands of years later into, like we were saying, this Arthurian conception of what is a knight, what is a good man, what is a good king, what are the characteristics, and how much then we have to learn as well that this this can carry on into into our own days as well. Now, I, I, think, I think it's wonderful the way that these stories, well, I think it's one of the beautiful things about the Catholic world, that the, they leaven and inform and blossom in these really extraordinary and unexpected ways. Wonderful. And then there was another topic that I thought was really relevant to our 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 current experience of the world. And you, you have a chapter called Master of the Ars Morendi, which is that the he is the, the figure of the good death. And I think I think for a lot of us, um uh, at least in Ireland anyway, we've maintained a kind of wake culture. And so funer- going to funerals, going to wakes, being around people dying, being around people who are dead is at least not actually so separated from our culture anymore. But I, I look more broadly at the world and I see a lot of separation that death is something that happens behind closed doors while doctors are trying to intervene, that it is a very medical, it is a very clinical experience. And I think, especially at the start of COVID, when people were looking and thinking that death was going to be taken out of that situation simply because of space and simply because of like that, the, we, we didn't know what the world was going to look like. We didn't know how many people were going to be affected by this disease and, and die from it. And so I think it in some ways has been a time when people have reassessed how they think about death and what the end of their life might look like. And I think the the paintings that you pulled out of the death of, of St. Joseph surround that beautiful idea of being surrounded by Our Lady and Jesus and being so immediately in touch with them and being there guided through to the next stage of existence with those people is such a beautiful um, aspect of art for us to meditate on, especially during Lent. 
Yes. I, I, that particular part was um, resonated a great deal with me during the pandemic because uh, one of the things about the pandemic is that it apparently caught many, 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 many people blindsided with the what? People die. And so uh, the reaction to the death announcements, so you hear in Italy, we were given every day how many people are dying. Um, when, when indeed, normally in Italy every day, 1,800 people die and nobody seems to notice. And so this idea of having death put directly in front of us seems to have, we have not handled it well. And the world handled the idea of, well, you, you die, and sometimes you can die of disease, and the disease will come and kill you. And I think uh, we showed ourselves unprepared to face death. The other thing um, that, that, that really informed that chapter while I was writing it was that uh, the church itself understands, is supposed to understand that this is where we excel. This is where the church, this is our thing. Like, what, what is our thing? Death is our thing. Right? <laughs> where is thy sting? Because it's our thing. I mean, it, 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 yeah, because this is where we excel in play. Because we remember that as these things happen to us, and this is a big factor of the pandemic, we have grown more and more and more accustomed in uh, the course of the late 19th, early 20th century of somehow eluding ourselves. We control the end of our lives. And somehow we have some say, we have some control that we, you know, by dieting right or by, or eventually we want to end our lives, we somehow think that we have some sort of measure of control over the end of our lives. And in comes the pandemic and you find out, no, sorry, you don't. Um, and uh, again, this is something that the church excels at. But the Jake Joseph was really there to make us understand that this life is only, it's preparation, it's only one thing. And with the churches, the church, of course, we are involved in charity and we're worried about the people in this world, we're worried about their needs, we're worried about hunger, we're worried about refugees, we're worried about poverty. But our real job, the real job, is that when you face that last moment, whether you're aged like Joseph or not, you understand that you are going from here to the embrace of God in heaven. And Joseph was the first person, by the way, to die who died with Jesus saying, oh, yes, so um, after this, that's my dad, and um, you're going to be hanging out there. And the way the story unfolds is so beautiful. Joseph, who you know, as far as we know, really hard to imagine the sins that Joseph committed with Mary here and Jesus here, right? Like, <laughs> how, how bad a sinner can you seriously be, Joseph? And yet there he is in the apocryphal stories. I can see the doors of Gehenna opening because I'm such a sinner. Woe to me. Why was I ever born? I'm the worst person who ever lived. Jesus, like, whoa, he's a let me just get Michael and Gabriel, and they'll 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 escort you up. I mean, what a lovely way of what a lovely way of understanding that death comes to us all. It comes even to the foster father of Christ, the, that that man who did exceptional things, who was Jesus' own father. He too had to die. I think finally, um, uh, your point to dying alone um, is uh, is very very poignant in the question of the pandemic, the circumstances pandemic allowed that many people die alone without the comfort of sacraments. And and I think I thought about them a great deal. I prayed for them a great deal when I was um, writing that particular chapter. So I was just thinking about, you know, there is Joseph, the first man to die with a sacrament, the first man to die with Jesus himself, anointing him, as it were, saying, 
here's your viaticum, there you go. And also the, the, the way that we're supposed to understand via Mary, those pictures are supposed to be instructional for, for those of us at a deathbed as well. That, you know, it's not about us in that moment and our grief and our fears and our loss is really meant to be put aside so that we focus on being there for that person and showing our hope and faith that that person will will be in heaven soon. So it, 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 to me, that was, I, to me, as a matter of fact, Joseph, as a figure first caught my eye many, many, many years ago, he, I knew Joseph because of the art of dying well, and I, 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 I loved Joseph for that. But in this particular context of the pandemic, I, that was the chapter that I think uh, uh, just it, 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 it meant a great deal to me, writing it in these circumstances. Absolutely. I really, really felt that. And I was reading a, an article called We've Forgotten How to Die, which has a quote from uh, Dr. Libby Salnow, who's the co-chair of the Lancet Commission on Palliative Care. And she has this quote, which says it, that death has moved from, from a, family of, a family event with occasional medical support to a medical event with limited family support. And I think, obviously, within the pandemic, that was a different situation again um, in terms of uh, what, how people were allowed to have access to people in hospitals at that stage. Um, but even more generally, I feel like there has been an, a desire to kind of sanitize death in, and in sanitizing it, I think it makes it so much more scary <laughs> that like actually the, the idea of dying at home surrounded by your family is something that we should actually want that it isn't, um, and, you know, that, that it depends on people's times of life. It depends on circumstances and like, you know, and hospitals can be made to be places that support families and, and, and things like that. But I just think I it was funny. My granny, who was living with us for the past couple of years, passed away last year and I was very close with her. And it was funny then when New Year's came around and someone asked me, oh, what were your highlights from from 2021? And weirdly... <laughs> weirdly the, the answer I came up with was my granny dying was actually a highlight but that sounds very callous and that sounds very horrific but she was able to die at home and we were all with her and we knew that's what she wanted and we knew that's what we wanted and she she went into hospital for a while and we were a little bit afraid like that that it would happen and we wouldn't be there or it would happen and um she wouldn't be with anyone and so i just love those paintings there's one that you have of from crespi is it of of saint joseph passing away and then there's that oh, william blake does those amazing colorful he's always over the top with his yes his he's always over the top voices. he's got that fantastic in the sense of lots of imagination going but i think it's such a reminder that our catholic faith offers us a chance that death can actually be as much as i miss my granny as much as i I, that was a hard thing to go through. It can also be a time that actually inspires you to draw closer to Christ, both in pain and in joy, that there is a celebration as well, not in a very, that very modern way of saying, we're going to have a celebration of life and nobody's going to wear black and nobody's going to cry, that the denial that something sad has happened. You know, we have Christ with Lazarus weeping. If, if, if Christ can cry at the death of someone, we should all cry. But at the same time that it points to hope, like you were saying, that that Joseph was the first one there to say, to, to have someone have that kind of 
present sacrament given to him like what a gift that is that that ushering to to god the father well i dedicated the book the dedication of the book is to the bear which is the family name of my father-in-law who died last summer last august and um it really was uh first of all he was he was he was very much saint joseph um in every way um but in particular his death which was which was happening 89 years old it was happening but this sense of first of all not only his his death which was peaceful um and and and, and prayerful and uh, he was fortunate to be there with his wife of 60 something years and uh then uh, at the funeral what struck me was to pray with him, 89-year-old man, packed church, packed, packed, packed. And then just this, this, this beautiful way in which a life, even at the end of that life, can still call people to him. And I, I thought that was that really made me think a lot about the kind of person that St. Joseph must have been, that you know, everything in his life, he, 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 he was sort of a stabilizing factor. In many ways, he was... He was a form of ecclesia. He was a way of bringing people together. The, the church of the Holy Family. I think that's a... Yeah. And you were saying about you know, ushering him into the afterlife. I was thinking a little bit, I know in the book you referenced that there was at some point people arguing for the assumption of, of Joseph into heaven. We don't quite, there is still, as as with most, most things with St. Joseph, I'm not sure whether we have a definitive doctrine on exactly how St. Joseph died or what happened to him. But um, as, a, as someone who studies medieval poetry, uh, or at least did in, in the past, I have always been really fond of those poems of the harrowing of hell in which Christ comes down. And they actually have him meet, I don't think there is one in which he meets St. Joseph. There's ones where he meets um, uh, John the Baptist as the first person he talks to. And then there's obviously, I'm sure you know all of those paintings of um, Adam and Eve bursting out of their tombs in in, uh, in limbo or, or whatever stage of, obviously, when we say hell, that means slightly different things in, in different ways at different times. It's not necessarily the hell of condemnation, but just the hell before the resurrection has occurred. There is a recent poem, though, I think by Sister Mary Ada called Limbo. She situates it in in limbo with all of these great figures of the Old Testament saying, Jesus is coming. Who should sing a song? David, you should sing a song. Like who, who are we going to get to, to um, like welcome Christ in his, his harrowing of hell. And in the end, they all fall silent. And the first person to speak is St. Joseph, which oh. I just, <laughs> for to finally have him, him come forward with his own voice is such a lovely idea of, of, of a poem. And I think the last lines of the poem says close to his heart when the embrace was done, old Joseph said, how is your mother? How is your mother's son? And it's it's a really lovely poem. I just think it's a lovely continuation of that. Um, That's a lovely, lovely poem. There's a funny, there's a little, speaking of ironies of Joseph speaking, um, St. Teresa of Avila in the convent where she lived, in the rooms upstairs, which are now kind of a shrine to St. Teresa of Avila, there's a little statuette of St. Joseph who has his mouth open. So he's called Talking Joseph, which is, you know, 
hysterically funny. And it was <laughs> set up in the convent when Teresa was away, apparently. Joseph would kind of keep an eye on things. And one of the sisters swore that when she came back, Teresa was in the room with the statue, and the sister heard a, a man talking in the room. But when she opened it, it was just the statue of St. Joseph and, and Teresa. So I said, Teresa, Teresa got Joseph to chatter. <laughs> I love that. I think that's great. I, I I love all of those paintings of that like dynamic family life. You have a beautiful one from Barocci, which from the flight to Egypt, and he's not talking in that, but that one definitely feels like family. Like it's one of the few he's he's feeding cherries to to the infant Jesus, and it's one of the few paintings of Jesus that I've seen where Christ really looks like a toddler. Like he's got this cheeky grin. He's got this like. That, that kind of expression that children have when they know they're getting you to do something that they want. <laughs> um, and I think that's where it comes in, like we said about all of those, while some people don't like those kind of more humorous paintings, what it drives home is the somewhat more accessibility of Joseph. If you're looking at the three people of the Holy Family, if, if you're going to relate to any of them, it's probably St. Joseph. <laughs> Yes, it's absolutely this right. It's, it's, I think that's one of the important things about him is that he's a key into uh, relating to the Holy Family. I have a copy of that painting right above my, you walk in my front door, it's the first thing you see. I love that painting so much. It's in the Vatican Museums and I think it's a glorious work of art. Hmm. Um, I was just going to touch a little bit on the, the paintings you have of the, it's the marriage, I think in some places it's called the betrothal. There's that, I, I was reading up on it on the idea that Mary and Joseph were betrothed in a type of ceremony before they lived together. And that's what informs some of the, the kind of con confusion around Christ's birth or like it masks some of that, or it's why Joseph is divorcing Mary as opposed to just breaking off an engagement. It's just a different understanding. But the paintings are, there are obviously in, in many ways, I'm sure it's kind of one of the more painted moments other than maybe the nativity of, of, Joseph's life because of that that pivotal moment of union and I think again it's one of those examples that I think they were painted in a time that needed to reassert what marriage was and if we need to do that <laughs> I think we need to do that again um so there I I really loved the one from the one that we mentioned already the is it Fiorentino and then also the the, the Raphael one as well. Again, I think those are the ones, I feel like we're more inclined to like the ones where Joseph looks younger. I think we all feel a little bit odd about the ones where yeah, yeah. Joseph looks very old. Uh, whereas at that time, him making him very old was more reassuring because it was the idea that it was a Josephite marriage and it made more sense to people that way. But I think certainly our, our more modern sensibilities are more attracted to the idea of Joseph as a as, as somewhat younger man who just has that that self-mastery and that, that love of chastity himself that we've discussed already. I think a lot of it, though, is that we like the idea of Joseph the younger man because, first of all, marriages did were very frequently tremendous disparate in age. So that's not as, it's not as jarring to the eye of the Renaissance as it is to mm -hmm. ours. Um, we kind of cast a whole bunch of ideas about the image of an older man with a younger woman today that makes it different from what they were trying to say in, um, in, in especially especially in earlier years when they were simply trying to, to protect the image of the chastity of the virgin. Um, but the, uh, the images that the 
Renaissance, like the, the images of the Renaissance likes, um, really just want to focus on the idea of a sacrament. So the, the issues that are in question are that while, yes, marriage is a sacrament, exactly how it works was a bit of a question. And originally, basically, they just took the old Roman rite, and just kept the Roman rite of the ancient Romans, and just kept using it. But eventually, questions about what makes marriage, dissolving marriage, what, what constitutes marriage, grow more and more and more complex. When you add to that, um, especially marriages among uh, families of means, there's a lot of contractual activity that happens when the marriage takes place. So marriage eventually, as, the, as you move to 1100, 1200, marriage becomes more and more of a kind of a contract, which takes place behind closed doors with like a notary. And that's how you end up with maybe people who get married several times over. And so mm-hmm. that's why we start getting the reading of the bands. So the idea of a public marriage, which takes place in a public place like a church and has not a notary, but you know, a, a, a priest or a high priest who is um, who is officiating is, is one aspect of it. And then the other thing that happens is the argument about uh, consent versus consummation, that what makes marriage. And uh, once again, um, Mary and Joseph are the perfect, when Raymond de Penyaford makes this argument, because he writes a summa on marriage, he says, well, uh, were Mary and Joseph married or not? You know, so that the kind of the, the understanding of what a marriage is via consent as opposed to consummation is a, is a key part. Um, that uh, that Russell Fiorentino is a it's a hybrid hothouse orchid. It's something that's completely unique. Comes out of left field. It was made for this husband who had lost his wife, um, and clearly it was very. It's actually a it, 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 a very early type of devotion to Saint Joseph. We don't have that many devotions to Saint Joseph that early in the 1520s, in which, you know, Joseph, he's just, he's so handsome. He's got these red curls. And he- I think it's the only painting I've ever seen where Mary takes almost like second place to I Joseph. I know, I know. Something I would just for I do have quite a few listeners from my own home, Ireland, um, and a friend of mine, Port Maher, actually put together a book called Betrothed, where he looked at the, a surprising number of um, betrothal scenes in Irish church stained glass windows. And it's something I always keep an eye out for now. There's a beautiful one in, in Dublin at the uh, Clarendon Street Church there. And he, he did two trips abroad and one was to, to the Vatican's. There's a, there's a bronze statue, I think, in the gardens there now. But there is also in Sussex a Harry Clark, one of our great Irish artists, a Harry Clark, um, stained glass window of that scene. And they're, they're beautiful in stained glass as well. I just think it's such a beautiful way to, to portray that story that like, and it works very well with stained glass, you know, two figures standing up straight together. It's that kind of shape of, of the stained glass uh, windows and, and they're really beautiful. So just one to keep an eye out for. Yes, I only used one stained glass in the book. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, that was. I wasn't sure about just the pure effect of the image on the page. I was. I was a little dubious about whether or not I wanted to use stained glass. But you're right. There are, and I've seen since. Um, I've seen before. There are a great many, uh, really lovely images of the. As, as a matter of fact, Joseph has a lot of very beautiful imagery. Period in stained glass. Yeah. Well, and as we've seen in the book, a lot of beautiful imagery generally. Um, And then I think kind of the final section I want to talk about was um, you did a a beautiful chapter on 
um, Joseph in non-Western art, um, specifically in South American art. But um, the idea of, you know, Joseph pops up as the patron saint of a whole range of different countries that had missionaries come to them. And I, I think it's beautiful to see him go around the whole world in this way. And then then, it, then later it becomes, again, fitting that he becomes patron of the universal church, that this sense of him being sent out into the world, to, that he brings all the world together into this home of the of the holy family. He's, it's amazing. He's a patron, not he's a patron of the Asian missions, and he's also a patron of a great many of the missions to Latin America and South America, and and the part brought by the Jesuits, that was brought by the Franciscans, the Carmelites, who you know are are, are holding him up as uh, as, uh, as as their 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 beloved their their patron. So he really he makes these sort of incredible forays. His success in in Latin America is insane. It's just it's insane. <laughs> Everyone, they just take him and they run with him. So there's no old Joseph, none of that nonsense. Let, let those crazy Europeans worry about his age. They make him young. He looks a lot like Jesus. He looks like a tends to He looks to he, Jesus tends to be sort of golden curled baby, and Joseph looks like the mature Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, they swathe him in a lot of uh, local uh, images, forms, and shapes because they really make him their own. Unfortunately, Asia, the persecutions in Asia were so terrible that the art of Asia, there's very, very, very little. So there undoubtedly were, and I, I, not just the not just the missionaries who went and produced art, but there undoubtedly were people who were inspired converts who also produced art, who were who were indigenous artists. But the persecutions were so terrible that the amount of art, it's just, it's tiny. Yeah. It, makes, it makes the persecutions of Diocletian of Little League. And, um, and, uh, but we do have a fair amount of uh, art from uh, Mexico. Miguel, Miguel Cabrera was, was, was the big, famous 18th century artist. And uh, then some interesting words that come from the Cusco School, which is Peru, but it, um, uh, Bolivia, they, they have a lot of interesting art there. And a lot of it features St. Joseph. Yeah. And I think the one that I was really struck with was, and it's such an interesting combination, you know, you have the Catholic Church sort of based in Europe, sending out these missions across the world that result in, you know, the Cusco School of Latin America doing a painting of the Nagasaki martyrs. Um, and, you know, this is all part of the the one tradition and the the painting of, of the Nagasaki martyrs. And there was actually a previous episode of this podcast that we did on the, the Asian martyrs in particular. Um, and we spoke about it then, but this painting is so interesting and unusual and I think very striking. It's just totally full of people. It actually reminds me at the start of the book, you've got a picture of the of Pisano baptistry and it's just layer upon layer of um, figures all bundled in together. And in the same way in this painting, you've got this really tight set of crosses of just all of these different martyrs and so sort of poking out at the top <laughs> is um, St. Joseph holding the baby Jesus in, as you point out, Franciscan robes and, uh, you know, bringing the, the elements of, of the background of their Catholic faith into this painting. 
I, I love. I, I couldn't believe it. that one was just one of one of those little treasures that made me when I you know, get get frustrated trying to organize all this material into a book, trying to make sense of it, trying to create some sort of uh, all the different problems you run into when you're writing a book. And I would be sitting there, Jason, like Joseph, you know, you want this book? Help me out. <laughs> uh, and then I found that one. That was one of those days when I was like, okay, this is this is clearly a thing that's happening. That's a magnificent. I was, I was desperately trying to find. I was looking and looking and looking and looking, trying to find um, evidence of images of St. Joseph. But for other reasons, I've also been looking into Asian art. I was just getting kind of interested in what does Christian art from Asia look like. And it's just, it's just so frustrating because there's so little evidence. And then up pops this thing where we have the record of the Nagasaki martyrs being held on the other, being, being maintained on the other side of the world. And... It's just, it's so Catholic, isn't it? It's just it's so wonderfully Catholic. Yeah, Catholic small C and Catholic big C. It's universal and, and, and Catholic at the same time. And and that idea that Joseph really is for everyone. Yes. It is. That the Joseph, Joseph, the only thing just popping in the corner, help, helping Jesus, is bringing Jesus. But that's, I mean, even when you look at, um, there's some images of uh, of Christ and, and, and Joseph from Cusco School, in, and, and it's usually Joseph who's leading Jesus. So basically, he's bringing Jesus because Joseph, just like Joseph brought Jesus to Egypt, Joseph brings Jesus to these other places. And so we see him kind of bringing him to the martyrs of Nagasaki, bringing him to the converts of the New World. It's a beautiful, beautiful. And uh, you finish off the book by doing due credit and not, not being one of these people that says that art only exists in the past. You highlight some of the beautiful artwork that is happening at the moment. I was lucky enough. Donny McManus is an Irish sculptor. Is he still based in Rome or has he moved? No, um, I think he's in, uh, he's in the United States and I think he's in Washington, D.C. around there somewhere. Well, I, I was lucky enough, the Catholic Library in, in Dublin, which is a wonderful resource, people should check it out, but that he, they had a talk with him there and he showed and talked about this sculpture that you have in it. Of It's it's a beautiful sculpture. And, and again, it's it's one of those examples of Christ really looking like just a happy little child that like feels very, you know, there's a lot of paintings of Christ the child that just feel like, you know, on Grecian vases, they can't do kids. So they just make children like, tiny tiny adults <laughs> instead um that there, there's that kind of he's too upright or he's too um he's too adult looking and obviously you're trying to convey that he he is still god he is still um omniscient but i love that that sculpture of uh, a very heroic rugged sort of aragorn looking <laughs> yeah very aragorn looking and before aragorn so there you go before yeah the, the Warnson, so there you go um, it's a little like donny too by the way it does it. It's a bit of a self-portrait. I always thought that. Yeah, I can see that actually. It's a beautiful sculpture, and you had some other really great examples of of modern art. I, I loved the one by Janet McKenzie. That's that's beautiful as well. Um, I was thinking of there's an artist called Bernadette Carstensen. And she has a St. Joseph Terror of Demons. But it's I, I didn't realize until I was reading this book, it's clearly modeled on the Grandi painting, um, which I, was one of my favorites as well. That picture, it's so detailed of, of um, Joseph holding the baby Jesus and standing behind this mosaic that just is like 
pointillism in the extreme. It's just these like hyper details and uh, standing at the top of these stairs that are strewn with flowers. I just think it's a beautiful painting. I think the, uh, I think the, I really did want to close the book with basically the same type of message that Pope Francis was trying to, trying to make. I mean, I just, I'm just repeating what he's saying. So Joseph is not something, not, not a saint for the Baroque or the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or the, the moment when the church lost the papal states. Joseph is a saint who has really proved himself over and over and over again to be a saint of the moment, a saint of right here, right now. And so I think um, what I was hoping to do, and what I really think between Patris Corde and the as you were outlining at the very beginning of this podcast, I mean, there are so many issues in the world that jo- that Joseph is there to um, uh, respond to. I mean, there, there is a real need to rediscover Joseph, whether it is the crisis in the family, the crisis of what it means to be a man, crisis in, 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 in people who are running away from a madman, they have to leave their homes. And, they, and, there, and there are so many different ways in which... Joseph can speak to us today. So this really is a challenge. This is a gauntlet. If there are people, if they people really don't think, if there are artists out there who think, you know, I could be a Michelangelo, just give me a chance. There's your chance. Your chance is right in front of you. So for people who want to see art return, they want to return to great art, you want a new renaissance, then you need to go out there and be a Lorenzo the Magnificent. You need to go out there to be a Leo the Tenth. You need to go out there to be a Vincenzo Giustiniani or all the people who were willing to take their devotion and turn it into something that they would put in their houses and their churches and their public spaces. And if you're an artist, you should get ready to deal with the, the subject matter and think of how you can visualize, you can help us visualize a Joseph for 2022. I mean, this is, this is the most exciting call to art and I've been watching calls to art that have been ridiculous and boring and then dead in the water. But this is one of the most exciting calls to art. It came from the very top. And this is a wonderful chance for all of us to participate. Right. I think that is just wonderful. And it's so energizing in a time that can feel very paralyzing. Um, and it, it's, the, it's that call, like you said, to creative courage, to go out and be c- courageously creative. And so do you want to tell people how to get the book and all about it? Well, you will find uh, The uh, Silent Night, St. Joseph is depicted in art. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, and you can find it on their website. However, you can be sure that it is available at all the other online booksellers from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc., etc. And we always close out this podcast with uh, recommendations. So is there anything that you've been reading, watching, enjoying, anything at all? Oh, what have I been reading, watching? Oh, okay. oh gosh, the stuff I read is so weird. It's kind of, it's kind of, I'm reading a, um, I've been reading a uh, Robin Jensen, who's kind of the moment my, um, my, uh, my hero, she is a, uh, she's a theology and history professor at Notre Dame University. She wrote a, um, a book called Face to Face, and so it's about visualizing Christ, visualizing in art. And it's, it's been a book that's really, it's, first of all, she's very accessible, very great, very interesting writer, but um, I find it a, a really wonderful book to think about the engagement of 
trying to create the image of Christ, the image of saints, and how art um, uh, is part of how art becomes that go-between, that that way in which we can. When you and I are talking over a digital format now, that art kind of creates a way for people to communicate with with saints, with 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 God, with those who aren't here. I love it. Um, for my recommendation, I have been reading. I've just only started, so it's probably it's not a, a recommendation categorically. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading um, Lady Augusta Gregory's um, Tellings of the Irish Myth. It's called um, Gods of Fighting Men, and it's lovely to be able. I obviously it was St Patrick's Day recently when we were recording this, so I <laughs> was thinking a lot about Irish culture and what I find interesting and what I would like to see more of. I wrote an article not that long ago for Levin about the abysmal state of Irish stamps. <laughs> and it just kind of got me thinking about how much I would love, again, like we've just been discussing, to see a kind of renaissance of, of Irish artistic expression and delving into both our religious history and then also our our kind of Celtic heritage beyond that as well. I think they can go together. So um, I started reading that. It's been on my to-read to list for a while, so I'm enjoying that. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you. It was great. What a fun talk. Thank you. And thanks for listening. As always, you can um, subscribe to our newsletter on my website. That's rachelsherlock.com. And otherwise, you can find us on all of the social medias. Um, it's Lent, so try to stay off them a little bit more. But for the most part, I'm on Twitter at Seeking Watson and on the podcast at Risking Enchantment Podcast. Liz, I believe you're on Twitter as well. I am. Uh, Liz Love Rowe. Wonderful. And we'll be back again in two weeks. So we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com Thank you and God bless.